Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, as Bree read for us. And this morning, we are jumping back into our series in 1 Corinthians. If you were with us over the fall, well, we started a series in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we made it through the first four chapters. And so from this Sunday to the first Sunday in July, we're going to be going through uh, chapters 5 through 7. And a way to just kind of get us back into the book, because we, we've taken a little break, uh, let me give us a little bit of a recap of, of this book and what's going on. And so uh, the, the church in the first century city of Corinth is on the short list of probably one of the messiest churches in history. If you, you name it, they did it. Uh, they minimized the gospel and they elevated human wisdom and philosophy. They minimized uh, holiness and righteousness and sexual immorality ran rampant. You had rich that were mistreating the poor. You had people that were elevating knowledge and intelligence over loving people. Uh, people thought that, hey, gifting was more important than service and humility. I mean, you had problem after problem after problem in this church. And so the the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church to instruct and correct them. And so the first four chapters, if you remember from the fall, really focused on this issue of gospel wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And so Paul wanted to reorient them away from the worldly wisdom that they had latched onto and that was causing division and causing cliques and saying, hey, the, the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of the cross is far truer and more beautiful and powerful than any wisdom of this world. And then in the next three chapters, Paul turns his attention to some specific ethical issues. And so not only was the, the church at Corinth's gospel amnesia causing division, it was also causing them to minimize holiness and godliness and was affecting the way that they were living their lives and their ethics as a church. And so these next three chapters are really going to tackle some of those gospel ethics. And in some ways, uh, these next chapters speak to some very specific issues that were happening in the church, not necessarily happening in our church. But at the same time, the broader principles that we're going to see over the next several months apply to us very much in the year 2021. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, we're confronted with an incredibly important question. Do we take righteousness seriously? Do we take godliness seriously? First City Church, do we truly care about being a godly, holy, righteous community that is together faithful to Jesus? Is the gospel so precious to us? Is grace so amazing to us? Is Jesus so glorious to us that we're willing to die to sin and die to self and lay those things down and take up our cross and follow Jesus? Look, if the answer is yes, and I believe it is yes for us, then we have to take seriously how we deal with sin in the community. How we deal with sin in our church. And I also understand that when we start talking about this, that it can raise some questions and some challenges. Because sadly, the church, rather than tr dealing with sin with grace and love and patience and humility, has often dealt with sin in a judgmental and harsh and heavy-handed way. Too, too often, there, there has been a wake of shame and guilt rather than people being built up in Christ and being set free from sin. We recognize people have been unjustly and unlovingly kicked out of the church rather than loved and cared for and discipled. And I'm guessing that for some of you, when you heard Bree read those verses, your body started to tense because you know about church discipline going sideways and the pain that that can cause. And look, I want to acknowledge the challenge and the wounds and the pains that you may carry and how that affects how you hear this message. 
But we also have to recognize that the abuse and the sin and the, and the mess of some churches should not cause us to step away from this truth that godliness matters. Righteousness matters. Being a community that is faithfully committed to Jesus matters. We can't take sin lightly because too much is at stake. We have to be on guard. We have to be alert. We have to be pur- purposeful. And so with that, here's the main points for us this morning. We deal with sin in the church through discipline by the church for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. We deal with sin in the church through discipline by the church for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. And so I want to walk through this main point by kind of breaking it down into sort of three sections. And so the first is I want to talk about sin in the church. In verse 1, Paul confronts head-on the the, the sin that is present in the church at Corinth. He writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And so it wasn't just that sexual immorality was present, it was known. It was out there. It was being reported. People knew, hey, this sexual immorality is taking place in the church at Corinth. But it gets worse. He also writes, in the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. It's not just that there's sexual sin and sexual immorality in the church, but the type is particularly dark. Like when the culture around the church, which really had very little morals when it came to sex, when, when when the culture around you says, hey, that's even too bad for us, you know things have gotten particularly dark. But the problem doesn't stop there. It actually gets worse. Not only is there sexual morality, not only is it particularly dark, But the Corinthians' response is off the charts bad. And you are arrogant. Look, the most shocking part of this whole situation is not that there's sin. It's not the type of sin. The most shocking thing is their response. Because look, there's always going to be sin in the church. Like you and I were sinners. And until Christ returns and restores all things and fully renews all things, we're going to deal with sin. First City Church, there's going to be sin in the church. Even in our best days, even in our best years, Sin will be present in the church. And so dealing with sin isn't shocking. And sometimes that sin will be particularly dark and difficult. But the most shocking part of this is that their response was arrogance. It wasn't humility and brokenness. It was arrogance. So if you remember from the fall, there was, when we talked about chapters 1 through 4, there was just sort of this overall kind of arrogance that was permeating the church. There was divisions, and one group thought they were better than the other group. And that translated also to them being arrogant about sin. And as we're going to see in a couple weeks here, what the the Corinthians had adopted kind of a hyper-spirituality, meaning they they adopted this belief that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so if you take that sort of hyper-spirituality and then put on top of that unbiblical sexual ethics, you have this dangerous recipe where you justify sinful sexual practices with an appeal to, I'm spiritual. They thought they were so spiritual that they were above not only their culture, that they were above the gospel ethic that the Apostle Paul had taught them. I'm so spiritual, I don't have to worry about this sin. I can minimize sin. This is why they were letting sexual sin run rampant, because they become arrogant. How does a church become this way? First City, we need to ask this question because we need to be careful that we do not become arrogant. How does a church become arrogant in this way. Well, the root of this kind of arrogance, the roots of arrogance that allows gross sin to run rampant, it grows from the seed of worldly wisdom that minimizes the cross. 
This kind of arrogance happens when we adopt worldly wisdom that causes us to minimize the cross. Here's one way that that happens. We begin to minimize the cross, meaning we minimize confession and repentance and dying to sin and dying to selfishness and dying to self in order to, to follow Christ. We minimize that. And what do we emphasize? We emphasize things like image and status and success Well, what's important is not confronting sin and dealing with sin, but no, we got a lot of ministry and mission and activity and growth, and look what we're doing for the kingdom of God. And when that becomes the centerpiece, when we adopt the worldly wisdom where image and success and status are what matter, what ends up happening? We end up stop confessing sin one to another, and we start trying to perform for one another. We start performing, because what's important then is that I look good in your eyes. Well, what's important is my status in your eyes. What's important to, to, for, for me is that you think I'm successful or that I'm gifted. And what, what matters is that we're seen as a church that is growing and has success in ministry. And you know what happens when that kind of arrogance and that kind of pride takes hold? We start putting our heads in the sand when sin pops up. But we start neglecting to deal with sin in our own hearts and stop confronting sin in the, in the lives of other people. And you know when this gets really bad? is when sin takes root among leaders. When, when, when leaders stop caring about sin and stop repenting of sin themselves and stop leading the church in repentance and leaders become caught in image and status and success, this gets very, very dark. Over the past five or ten years, we've seen example after example of ex- after example of this taking place. I mean, whether it's the sexual abuse scandals that are rocking the Southern Baptist Convention, whether it's celebrity pastors falling like Bill Hybels or Carl Lentz or the influential apologist Ravi Zacharias, even in our own tribe, our own network, Acts 29, we've had to deal with leaders like Mark Driscoll and Steve Timmis, guys who abuse their leadership. And and it's almost becoming sort of just this like secondhand news. We're like, okay, another leader fell. Well, um, of course, that's what leaders do. And you know what's particularly sad and tragic about this? Is that in all of these cases, there were people crying out and saying, hey, there's sin here we need to take seriously. There's problems here with this leadership. There are people being immoral. And other leaders and other people just put their head in the sand. And here's what we have, church. Abuse of power and sexual abuse. Things the world doesn't tolerate, the church tolerating. The church letting run rampant. Tragic. Tragic. And too often these ministries and these leaders are arrogant. Well, I have the best doctrine. I have the best teaching. Look how successful I am. Look how much influence I have. All the while, minimizing repentance and confession and humility before the Lord, dying to self. Oh, it is tragic, church. It is tragic when we take up this mentality that we are so spiritual, we're so successful that we can minimize sin. When we do that, the result is people being mistreated and sinned against and even abused. Here's how this also plays out. Another form of this arrogance and this worldly wisdom is when we say, hey, let's just shelve all that talk about the need for confession and repentance. Let's let's shelve all that talk about the gospel because when you talk about dying to self and repenting of sin, that's actually just repressing your authentic self. That's repressing what, who you truly are, and when you do that, worldly wisdom will tell you, you cause psychological and emotional damage. Those of you that, that follow the news, maybe you're aware of what happened recently in Arkansas, where they um, passed a law that was banning certain transgender procedures on minors. And here was the outcry, even among some evangelical Christians. 
That's going to cause people to commit suicide. That's going to cause people to be damaged. And so we've adopted this mentality that calling people to die to sin and die to self is actually bad for them. And then if you're one who says, no, we actually need to be calling people to to repent of sin and turn from sin and follow Christ, you're arrogant for doing that. And church, when this becomes our mindset, when this worldly wisdom is what we adopt, we move away from the truth and the foundation of God's word. We trade the wisdom of the gospel for the wisdom of the world. We're shaped by the world's ethics. And then here's what happens. Confession of sin is almost non-existent. At least we don't confess anything meaningful. Discipleship is shallowed out because we're not calling each other to die to sin and die to preferences and die to self. Relationships become shallow because we're not, there's no godly vulnerability where we open up our lives and our hearts to other people so they can speak truth to us. And even more, worship of Jesus becomes so lukewarm at best because the glory of self and chasing comfort and pleasure fills our hearts more than the glory of Christ and the kingdom of God. In church, today, much like in first century Corinth, the way that this plays out is through sexual ethics. Now, not the only way, but a significant way. This sort of the tip of the spear, where you see this being talked about more than any other place, is sexual identity and sexual ethics. And so over the past four or five years, you see greater and greater acceptance of sexual practice and sexual identity that the Bible clearly calls sin. And, and, and the attitude and the mindset it says that we're just so much more enlightened now. We understand sexuality and sexual identity better than they did in, in the Bible, better than the Apostle Paul or better than those in the Old Testament. Really, the truly loving thing to do is to defend and accept people. And so those in evangelical churches are championing such practices and identities and they justify it with scripture. They justify it with spirituality. And the fruit of this, the fruit of this, is that people go deeper and deeper into sin and they're enslaved and trapped by sin that is going to damage them body and soul rather than experience the freedom that is in Christ. In church, first city, ours is not to go, hey, thank God we're not like all those other churches. Ours is not to be a posture of arrogance. Ours is to ask the question, do we take holiness seriously? Do we care deeply about godliness and righteousness? Do we care deeply about God's word and the gospel? Because we are always going to be facing sin, as I said. There is going to be sin in this church of various kinds, and none of it should shock us. None of it should cause us to go, where'd that come from? Rather, in the face of sin, we should ask ourselves, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond in arrogance? Arrogance of being judgmental and harsh and heavy-handed or the arrogance where we minimize sin and we minimize uh, repentance and, and humility? Or are we going to be a people who embrace humility, embrace repentance and confession, who run to the cross, run to Jesus, cry out for grace and mercy, saying, Jesus, set us free. Jesus, empower us to walk in righteousness and godliness. Jesus, we need your help. Is that who are we going to be, church? Because friends, it's only with that posture It's only with that humility that we can properly address sin in the church by exercising discipline in the church. If we're going to walk out discipline as God has called us, we have to have a heart of humility and repentance. Because as we see in verses two through five, what God's word calls the church to do is significant and it's sobering. 
Paul writes, shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from the, your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, am I, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who's been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that he might, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so rather than arrogance, there should be humility and grief. Rather than allowing sin to run rampant and unopposed, sometimes people need to be removed from the congregation because we care deeply about righteousness and holiness and godliness. Church discipline is to be a real and active part of church community. Now let's just take a time out here. When we start talking about church discipline, maybe some of you, again, you're kind of tensing up. You're going, I've seen this go badly. And so when you start talking about this, you're like, I, I don't know if I like this. Hey, I can relate to that. I can understand that. I, have, I really do sympathize with that. Look, when I was 17, my mom and my, myself and my younger brother, we were unjustly kicked out of a church. And that hurt deeply. That hurt for years and years and years. In some ways, it still even carries some of those wounds. So I can understand why the talk of church discipline could be hard to hear. But, but can I just ask you for a moment to sort of just suspend judgment for a second? And just hear what God's word has to say about this because what it holds out is actually something good and beautiful for us. And so in these verses, in verses two through five, and when it comes to church discipline, there's really three important factors that are highlighted here. The who is involved, the how it is carried out, and the purpose for it. And so who is involved? Well, what we see is both church leadership and the congregation. And so Paul, as an apostle and a leader of the church, he, he exercises authority. He, he says, hey, this person needs to be removed from the congregation. So as the leader, he's making that call. But he also says, congregation, you guys take action as well. And so there is, it is both leadership and the congregation at the same time joining together to make this decision. Church discipline is to be a joint effort. Leadership doesn't make the decision by itself. The congregation doesn't make the decision by itself. Leadership can't just go kicking people out half-cocked. Congregation just can't go kicking people out half-cocked. It's supposed to be together. How is it carried out? Publicly and corporately. Paul says to take action when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus. This is a reference to corporate public gatherings. Look, removal isn't supposed to be done in the dark, in secret. It isn't just a secret meeting that only a select few people with a process that's hidden and reasons that are kept quiet. It's to be done open and in the light. This protects the integrity of the process and makes sure everybody is involved that needs to be involved. It's also important to note here that what Paul is describing is the end of a process. Paul isn't just like, hey, anytime someone sins and annoys you, kick them out of the church. No, this is the end of a process that Jesus himself gave his disciples. We read in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, the process that Jesus gave us. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you. Notice the process. If someone sins against you or sins out in the open, go and confront them and tell them and implore them, hey, repent, turn back to Christ. And if they do so, praise God, you won them over. If they don't, hey, go get a couple other brothers or sisters and again, implore them, hey, we want you to turn from sin and turn back to Christ. 
And so the hope is, is that as you are bringing more people in, there, there'll be this sense of, hey, I really need to listen to my community and turn from sin. And so it's only after appeal, after appeal, after appeal, and you bring more people in and more people in, then when we come to the end, that's when removal happens. And it's not because someone's gotten too messy and we don't want to deal with them anymore. It's not because they don't agree with every little thing that we do. No, it's only when they're in this position of being unrepentant. They're refusing to turn from sin and turn to Christ. And it's gotten to such a point where we're saying this, hey, what you profess and how you live your life are not lining up and your sin is actually damaging the church. And so it's a sobering, slow process before we ever get to the place where we have to remove. But it is something that at times we are called to do. But here's what we should see. The process of church discipline isn't just at the end. It's the whole thing. It's all of discipleship. It's when we're confronting way here at the beginning or confronting in the middle or at the end. The whole thing is part of the process. And here's the thing, church. If our hearts are humble, if the culture of First City is one where we're confessing and repenting and we're humble before the Lord and one another, by God's grace, it will never get to that point where we have to remove people. This is why we want to build a culture of humility and discipleship and confession and repentance. So finally, what's the purpose? Why do we do these things and and execute church discipline at times? Is it to condemn? Is it to kick people out and shun them and never talk to them ever again? No. The Apostle Paul says, hand the, the man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved. Now you might be thinking, what does that mean? What kind of voodoo talk is that? Hand someone over to Satan? What Paul means here is that when you turn someone out from the community and remove the protection of godly community, because being in a godly community, there's a protection. There's a restraint on sin. But when you remove that and send them out into the world where Satan's way of living and his influence is stronger, the hope is, is that if you just give this person over to the sin, that that sin is going to run its destructive course. And at some point, that person's going to come to their senses and say, what am I doing? It's kind of like the, the, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. He goes and he lives, lives a sinful lifestyle and that sin just wrecks him and he comes to a sentence and goes, what am I doing? This is what we want to see happen. We turn people out and we turn them over to their sin in hopes that that sin has such a destructive effect in their life that they realize sin is not the way to live. Let me turn back to Christ, turn back to the community and we welcome them back in with love. And the whole time we're not shunning people. We're not ignoring people. We're praying for them. We're appealing to them. We're loving them, but we're also recognizing, hey, where you are is not in in part of this community, but you're out here with Satan and with the influence of Satan. And so we acknowledge that that's needed, but we do that with hope that restoration and redemption will happen. And so in these verses, here's what we see. The discipline by the church is meant to be done in a way that shows integrity and honesty, and it's for the purpose of redemption and restoration. And look, sadly, it isn't always the case. Sometimes leaders and churches wield this as a weapon to remove people they don't like or remove people they're asking questions and they use it and they abuse it. But the answer to that is not to neglect church discipline because when we neglect church discipline, that wrecks havoc on the church as well. The answer is to exercise church discipline from a godly, gospel-centered way. Because when we deal with sin in the church, to the discipline by the church, it's for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. Christ calls his church to exercise discipline for its good. Jesus knows that we are going to be dealing with sin. Jesus knows that there are going to be sin in our community, and so he gives us each other, 
and he gives us structures, and he gives us tools to help us deal with that sin for our good. As Paul writes in verses 6 through 8, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so in these verses, Paul pulls on two different uh, feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover Feast. And so in the ancient world, when you made bread, you didn't have a lot of yeast just kind of laying around. You can go to the store and get yeast. And so what you would do is you would leave a little piece of the dough behind, some leaven, kind of think how you make sourdough bread. But over time, what would happen is that leaven would pick up dirt and dust and bacteria. It would get contaminated. But every time you made a new loaf of bread, that contamination would kind of get passed through. And so your bread essentially would get dirtier and dirtier as the year went on. And so what God had Israel do is once a year, you would clean out all the old, all the old leaven and start over again. But it wasn't just culinary hygiene that was in play here. God had them enact something physically in order to point to an important spiritual practice. Just as we need to clean out old leaven and get rid of the dirt and the contamination, we need to be regularly cleaning out our hearts. We need to be regularly cleaning out the old leaven of sin that is in us and purifying our community. And so just as dirty leaven over time accumulates and compounds that contamination, it's the same thing with sin. Look, if we don't deal with sin over time, it compounds and contaminates more and more and more. There's no such thing as just some small little sin that's no big deal. Look, look if, we, if we sort of treat sin as, hey, that's some small thing, no big deal, what happens over time? It grows and it grows and it grows and it compounds and contaminates more and more and more. And this is why you have churches that chat with shallow discipleship or leaders that use and abuse people or sexual immorality running rampant or gossip and slander and lying and division. Those things don't just happen overnight. It's a slow accumulation of sin over time building up. And so when churches... Don't take seriously the call to clean out the old leaven of sin. What ends up happening is that sin and Satan and foolishness run damage and wreckage through those communities. When we start minimizing the gospel and minimizing the cross, we open ourselves up to sin wrecking us and ruining us. This is why, whether we ever have to remove someone from a congregation or not, we still clean out the old leaven so that we may be a new unleavened batch. We clean out the sin in our hearts. We, do, we clean out the sin in our community so that sin and Satan and foolishness don't wreck us. But friends, here's what we need to know. Here's what we need to recognize and acknowledge. The position we do this from. Well, we don't clean out the old leaven so that we make ourselves a new clean batch. No, no we clean out the leaven because that's what we already are. Notice what Paul says. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. We don't do this to make ourselves something. We do this because we already are. This is gospel-empowered cleansing. You see, when Israel was called to clean out the leaven and clean out the sin, it's because God had saved them from sin and slavery in Egypt. And the Passover feast, that was a celebration of what God had done, his, his judgment passing over Israel in the land of Egypt as they, as they sacrificed a spotless lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. Look, it wasn't just Egypt who deserved God's judgment. Israel deserved God's judgment as well. But when they took that sacrificial lamb, that judgment went on that lamb instead of them, and the judgment passed over them, and they were saved, and they were redeemed, and they were restored, and they were made a holy people by God. 
Friends, for us in our salvation, an infinitely greater Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ. It's through his blood, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of that is for our good. It's through his blood that our sins, excuse me, are fully paid for. That we are completely cleansed of our sin and set free from our sin. Through Jesus Christ, we're made a new, unleavened batch welcomed in and accepted and loved by God the Father, holy and blameless before him, a son or a daughter. Friends, because of Jesus, because Jesus has defeated sin, he's defeated sin's corruption, and he's defeated its power, and he's set us free, what can we do now? We can practice the feast. We can observe the feast, meaning we can now glorify him and worship him and live our lives not in evil or malice or sin and deception, but with sincerity and truth. Friends, because of what Christ has done, we have every reason, every hope, every power to walk humbly, to confess sin and repent, to to continue to depend upon the Spirit's power, to, to open our lives to others that they may speak truth to us and disciple us. And look, First City, by God's grace, we, we haven't had to remove somebody from, from the community. And I pray we never have to. But regardless, let's not miss the deeper point of this passage. Let's not be arrogant. Let's not be arrogant and minimize sin and minimize holiness. Let's not move away from confession and repentance. Let's not be a community that adopts worldly wisdom and minimizes the cross. Let's be a community that's shaped by the cross shaped by confession, shaped by repentance, shaped by humility, laying down sin and selfishness and pride, that we may walk in godliness and truth and faithfulness to Christ. And if you're here this morning and you hear all that I'm saying and you're thinking, hey, if they just knew the sin that I committed or the sin that I had committed or was committing right now, they'd kick me out. Can I tell you that's the voice of the enemy? That is the voice of the enemy who wants to keep you locked in your guilt and your shame and enslaved to sin. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus said in John, 3, or John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Look, your sin may be dark and devious and destructive, but the grace of Jesus meets you in the darkest pit of your sin to rescue and redeem and save. Humble yourself before Christ. Turn from your sin, and then let his grace and his hope, and his strength, and his healing, and his transformation come to you through his people. Look, First City Church, we're not perfect. We're not. We need the grace of God just like you do. But we love you. And we want you to be a part of this community. We want to walk with you. We want to hold out the gospel and hold out Christ. We want to disciple you. We want to be in community with you. And so be part of a community and let Christ transform you through his community. And so First City for the good of our own souls and the good of one another. Let us open our hearts to one another. Let us bring our sin into the light. Let's not hide from each other. Let's not run from each other. Let's not stiff arm each other. And also, let's not be afraid to enter into each other's mess and pain. Rather, let's speak truth to one another. Let's confront one another, but let's also guard one another and pray for one another and encourage one another. Can we be those who celebrate confession and repentance? Like when confession and repentance happens, can that be met with love and patience and grace and hugs? Because here's what happens. When people start to confess and repent, it gets messy before it gets better. 
It gets harder before it gets better. And so sometimes when people start confessing and repenting and bringing their sin to the light, we're like, whoa, too messy, let me back away. Let's not do that. Let's move toward each other when people are confessing and repenting. Let's move toward each other. And let us take sin seriously, but let's not navel gaze. Let us take sin seriously, but let's not have our eyes down in the dirt on our feet. Let's look up to Christ and his glory and his grace and his forgiveness and his power. Let's have every hope and every confidence that he who began a good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. Because that's the hope that we have. That's the power that we live in. Oh, we can walk in humility. We can walk in confession and repentance. In church, we need not be afraid of church discipline because we can recognize that it is for our good. Amen? Let's pray.